Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Crabb. We gave him so much Benadryl, he looked like an extra from a Cheech and Chong movie. I will never forget him peeking up from the seat like, what the fuck, man? (laughs) Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Stevie Wonder behind me now. And uh, this is the final Risk episode of 2019. Our Christmas, our holiday stories episode. Holy cow. What a year this has been. This year has had, I mean, as far as ups and downs go, the ups were so high and the downs were so low that I was just laughing to myself thinking that this year itself was like a fucking risk episode. I'm, I'm, (laughs) I am quite frankly happy to see it go. (laughs) 
and hoping that next year has more ups than downs. Although, you know, uh, well, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I think we're going to have to buckle in, my friends. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Ryan Estrada. This will be his third time on the show. You can find him at ryanestrada.com. But before that, we're going to feature a story that was just told a couple days ago at the Risk Live show in New York City by Carolyn Castilla. You can find Carolyn on Twitter at Miss CKC. And here she is now with a story we call... A towny carol. What you need to know before I start this story is that when I was growing up, my mom had undiagnosed borderline personality disorder, okay? So what that means is she hit me till I was 21 years old. All right, I know that's crazy, right? And after that, she was just like a bitch. You know what I mean? <laughs> so bear that in mind, and uh, I'll tell you my Christmas tale. So <laughs> five years ago, I went home for Christmas. I was 38 years old, and I had not had sex in two years. Yeah, say that louder. Um, (laughs) Now listen to me. I have gone two years more than once in my life without having sex, and I can tell you that if you have not had sex in two years, you get pretty thirsty, okay? Like, at a certain point, your vagina is just like, you need to do it now! (laughs) So I decided that while I was home, I was going to break this dry spell by fucking a townie. (laughs) Now, you know, that's not something I've ever done before. Obviously, I had sex with people while I was in high school, but that's not the same as fucking a townie, right? Now, I didn't make this plan when I was in New York City, so I didn't have any get fucked for the first time in two years clothes with me on this trip. All I could do to make this happen was rifle through my mother's closet to try to find something to wear that would get me laid, okay? The best thing I could find was one of those sweaters that's like lace, the kind that you buy at Walmart, so it looks like a doily, you know, and you can't tell if like that's the design or if the underpaid women who made it were just like, fuck it, this one's done. (laughs) I found that and I found one of those like push em up tanks to wear underneath and I went downtown in my hometown and I found a bar For my hometown, I have to say, I grew up in central New York. This bar was pretty swanky, right? It was owned by a guy that I went to high school with, and it was, like, real cute on the inside. And I was like, okay, I see you, boo, all right. I sit down, I order a Christmas teeny. It's got a little peppermint stick, you know? And I'm just sipping solo, waiting for Mr. Wright to walk in. All of a sudden... 
this woman that I went to high school with busts through the door. And for some reason, people I went to high school with like sometimes think that I'm kind of famous. I don't know why, right? So she sees me and she's like, oh my God. And she like gives me this huge hug. And I was like, listen, it's so nice to see you, but it's like, don't, it's not a big deal. I'm not famous. We're here together. Uh, (laughs) And I see that she has this guy with her. And immediately... I noticed that he's fucking really cute, right? And I'm like, you are not from here because you are too cute. (laughs) You did not grow up here. You have all your teeth, you know? And so, but I'm like, you know what? He lives here now, clearly, so he counts as a townie, so fuck it, right? And I can tell that she has brought him here because she wants to fuck him. And... I never get in the middle of people's situations. I'm not that type of person. But it's clear that he does not want to fuck her. He wants to fuck me, right? And like I could tell because we're sitting there, we're all talking, and that thing happened where like our pinkies accidentally touch, but then neither one of us moved. You know what I mean? You fucking double down on that hot pinky energy, you know? (laughs) And once the hot pinky energy was locked in, I was fucking full flirt, you know? And I'm not a flirt. I'm a fucking truck driver, but like... (laughs) But like, I'll play the game, you know what I mean? So like, he said something stupid, and I hit him like... Right, you know, and then he says something else stupid and I touch his thigh like, you're a genius. (laughs) And then eventually we ended up two stools facing each other, four knees locked in a row. And that's when I was like, we fuck it, you know. (laughs) So we go to leave the bar together and I get out to the parking lot and I'm like, oh shit, I have a kid. Like, I had completely forgotten that I have a kid, you know? And I was like, I can't fuck this guy right now. My kid is at my mother's house. And I never asked my mother to babysit, right? So I say to the guy, look, I can't go with you tonight, but just take my number. If you're still interested tomorrow, text me, and, you know, we'll see. So I'm not really expecting anything, because whatever, you know? But the next day, 6 o'clock... I get a text, do you still want to hang out? And I was like, oh fuck yeah, right? (laughs) So now I have another opportunity to try to put some kind of outfit together for a second time. I find these black pantyhose, I look in the back of the closet, I see I've left my own dress there, right? So I have a black dress, black heels. I actually look sort of okay. And I'm like, oh shit, yeah, oh shit, okay. So I grab this bottle of bullet that I had been given as a Christmas gift and I say, I'm going to this dude's house. So I drive there, I get to his house, walk in. He lives in this gorgeous fucking cabin-esque home that he has built with his man hands, 
And we're sitting on this couch looking at his fucking handiwork like a fucking stone fireplace. He's laid every goddamn stone, right? There's exposed beams overhead. We're drinking bullet. He's telling me about his kids. I'm like, oh, you got kids? She's fucking wet down my thigh. (laughs) So at that point, I'm like, okay, we've talked enough. Let's just do it. And so we walk into the bedroom. He's got a giant sleigh bed. (laughs) A sleigh bed. A true fucking sleigh bed with the curvy posts and everything. It's fucking Christmas time. I was like, you better hit it, Santa. (laughs) Okay. Right? So I crawl in the bed. Ho, ho, ho that I am. (laughs) We start making out. He goes down on me right away. An important sign of respect. And then I could tell he wants to stick it in, you know. You know how men are. And I'm like, all right, grab a condom. And he goes, I wasn't going to use condoms. And I was like, uh, what? (laughs) And he was like, well, it's kind of high school, isn't it? And I was like, I I don't care. Like, you're using a condom. Fucking call it trigonometry if you have to and slap it on your dick, you know? (laughs) You're wearing a fucking condom, right? So he puts the condom on. We have sex. It's passionate. It's fantastic. I'm feeling great. My body's opening up. He comes. I'm flushed. I'm like, yeah, all right. That was fucking excellent. I'm about to just grab my heels and walk out like, bye. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, yeah. (laughs) Who said that? (laughs) Was it you? I'll find you. I'm alone right now. See, this is the thing men don't understand. Don't, don't fucking threaten me. You know what I mean? Don't fucking threaten me with your, oh, you wanted to go again. It's like me, you know? Because I will, I will sit on your dick, you know? That's the thing. And you're not ready. You're not ready. They never are. I leave you changed. That's the thing. Forever in your soul, right? That's it. You're just going to be like, Carolyn, forever. So as the gentleman mansplained to you, he wanted to go again. So he gently pushed me down onto the bed. Okay. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Look, look, this is a podcast, okay? I, and, and I'm a live performer, and I love, you want to heckle, I'm, I'm in it, you know what I mean? But we need to make sure that they can understand the visual when they hear the audio, you know? 
because I want them to imagine us fucking now, Jeff. Okay? And also, what kind of man just shouts out from the safety of the dark? You know? I can't fucking see shit. By the way, the chick who yelled something out got it right. All of them. All of them, right? Like, honestly, if it... That's so funny. From the safety of a dark room, he's like, I did it, right? And then after the show when the lights come on, he's like, it wasn't me. I don't, uh, it wasn't. Okay. Uh, All right. Are you drunk? Yes. Okay. (laughs) All right. I I would play with you, but we have to continue the show. Is that okay? Thank you. Yes, ma'am is my safe word. So he starts to kiss me, and I'm fucking pumped, right? Because go again, townie round two, what? You know, I thought you could only get that shit in New York City, you know? And all of a sudden, he just sticks his dick in me with no condom. You know, I didn't know what to do because obviously (laughs) that was not what I wanted. I made it very clear the first time you have to wear a condom. And I could tell, oh, he just wanted to go again so that he could do this. This is what he wanted. This is what he wanted the whole time. And this sexual encounter was for me. You know, it wasn't for him. It was me fucking breaking my dry spell of two years. It was me choosing the cute guy. It was me using my hot pinky energy, right, to fucking win. And I wanted a win. And so... All I could say in that moment was, okay, but don't come inside me. That was like the only way I could figure out how to feel like it was my choice. And, you know, he had sex with me. And I just kind of was there. And it ended. He did not come inside of me because I think he had enough kids. And so I left, you know, I grabbed my heels and I grabbed my bullet and I left and I got in my car and I drove to my mother's house and I sat in the driveway and cried. And then the next day, it was just one of those days in between Christmas and New Year's when there's fucking nothing going on and all you can do is sit there in the stew of your dysfunctional family, right? And so we'd had dinner and my mother was sitting at the other end of the kitchen table. I'm sitting across from her. And she's sewing, and she's not looking at me. She's just looking at her sewing machine. And I'm thinking about what happened to me the night before. And I knew I couldn't tell her. It's not because she wouldn't care. She just wouldn't even understand it, you know? But something inside of me broke, and... I just started to say, like, Mom, why did you treat me the way that you did when I was a kid? You know, because I knew that the reason why guys could do stuff like that to me is because she abused me. And I pushed it further, and I said, you hurt me so bad, and I 
I want to fix this with you. I want to talk to you about it. I try to talk to you. You won't talk to me. You don't admit that you did anything wrong. You know, you won't help me get better in terms of how I feel about it. And she finally looked up from her sewing and she said, well, Carolyn, if I'm so awful, what do you keep coming around here for? And I thought, I don't know. I don't know why I keep coming here. (laughs) But I listened to my body in that moment, and it said, stand up. So I stood up, and I walked over to my mother, and I saw this dumb red tomato pin cushion. You know those fucking dumb red tomato pin cushions? Old school shit, right? And there are little pins sticking out of it. And I heard my body say, take it. (laughs) And I just, I took it. I just fucking took it. And then I was like, oh no, what am I going to do with it? I don't know. What happens now, body? Right? And I just fucking, I just threw it. I just, that's all I could do. I just fucking, I just flicked it. I threw it across the room. Right? And I watched that little red tomato pin cushion fly over my mother's head and land behind the chair that she sits in every morning. And the release of that tomato pincushion set something free in me for the first time in my whole life. And I looked at her fireplace where she had all these cards, all these Christmas cards from all these people who don't really know her and don't know what she had done or what she was really like. And I was like, you know what? Fuck you and all your fake fucking friends. And I ripped all the Christmas cards off the fireplace and I started tearing them up into confetti. And I threw the confetti up into the air. And when the confetti landed on the floor, I looked and I saw the only thing that was left were two poinsettias. And I picked up the poinsettia and I shook it out and I dumped it on the ground. And I picked up the other poinsettia and I shook it out and I dumped it on the ground. And in that moment of silence, at the end of a fight, when the dust settles and everything kind of calms down, my mother said, Touche, Carolyn. Touche. That's not how you use touche. That's not touche. Like, that's not, you don't get touche. Like, that's not, that doesn't even make sense. What the fuck are you talking about? Touche. There's no touche there. What is that? What touche is that? You hit me my whole life. I fucked up your plan. Touche. There's no fucking touche. No way. No touche. And that's the last big fight my mother and I ever got in because I didn't talk to her after that for two years. But here's the Christmas miracle, okay? In that two-year period, when my mother and I were not speaking, she started taking drugs. She started taking SSRIs. And then she started to feel better. And she was less of a bitch. And so 
two years later, when we finally reunited, she told me this. And she was like, you know, Carolyn, I don't know why I did all that. I couldn't control myself. I was angry. And now I take these pills and I don't feel as angry anymore. And I said, you know what? Touche, mom. (laughs) Touche. Happy holidays, everybody. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young 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 Crosby. I was four years old the first time I heard an elf. My mom tucked me in on Christmas Eve and said, Now Ryan, Santa can't come until you fall asleep. (laughs) Well, that's a huge bomb to drop on someone who only just started making long-term memories. Uh, The supernatural exists and it is controlled by your actions. How am I supposed to sleep after that? So I ask, how does he know? Mom says, shh. The elves are watching you. Now there's no way I'm sleeping. Elves are staring at me right now? Are they always there? Do they live in our house or do they creep in out of the wetlands? I didn't know, but I knew I had to sleep. So I squeezed my eyes shut as hard as I could and I whispered, Sleep! 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 But every shadow could have been the pointy hat of a spy. Every creak could have been a pair of curly-toed shoes sneaking in to get a better look. Where were they? Staring in through the window? Hiding under the bed? Waiting behind the crack in the closet door? I buried myself underneath the blankets, and after a long time shaking, I slowly started to drift away. And then I heard it. Thump! I shot up from under my covers, and then another thump. It was coming from somewhere outside my room, loud enough to shake the walls. I put my hand against the wall, and I felt it. That's when I knew Santa was on the roof. It was all true. The elves had told him the second I fell asleep, and there he was on top of my house. Were they still watching me? Then the thump started coming faster. Thump, thump, thump. The elves must have been up there with him, helping him unload. No one was watching, so I climbed on top of my bed and put my ear to the wall. I could feel the vibrations. The next morning, I ran downstairs to find a room full of presents. I excitedly told my mom the whole story. Her face turned red, and she said, Yup, that's totally what it was, Santa and his elves. And then she and my dad laughed nervously. I didn't get what was so funny. Elves were real. They were in our home. They could be watching us at that very moment. Mom made these things sound amazing and exciting, and I mean, I couldn't argue with the end results. Santa took care of us. My baby brother and I had stockings bigger than we were, and that was just the appetizer. They were sitting at the foot of a mountain of presents with wrapping paper in every color of the rainbow. So my mom said, the elves must have told Santa what good boys you are. So does that mean these things were always watching us? Always? Like, when it wasn't even Christmas? Like, 
when we were in the bathroom? It's okay, my mom said. They tell Santa what you like. I had so many questions. Where did they sleep? Did my brother and I each have our own elves, or did they take turns? Not everyone was a big fan. My dad always seemed suspicious. As we opened presents, he'd say, Don't you think Santa brought a little too much Luann? And she'd say, Look how happy they are. They were both always so tense during Christmas. My mom always had to work a lot of late nights. She never slept. She got hives. My dad was always freaking out about money. One year, he found an overdue bill hidden in a drawer, and the screaming match was so loud, I ran outside and hid in the snow behind the big rock in our front yard. He was like, when were you going to tell me about this? You were hiding this from me? I didn't even know this card existed. You just spend and you spend and you spend and you don't think. I wasn't sure what any of it meant. It was all grown-up stuff. Until I heard, we wouldn't have to worry about this if Santa didn't have to bring so much shit. What did Santa have to do with anything? Surely free stuff from cryptids would help, not hurt. I knew it was a sensitive topic with my parents, but I was obsessed with learning more about the elves. So instead of asking questions, I looked for clues on my own. When I was five, it was wrapping paper. It was a family Christmas party at my aunt's house, and she was telling us not to talk too much about how much Santa brought us. She didn't want my cousins to be jealous. I heard her tell my mom, Santa only gets my kids one little gift. The good stuff comes from me. I work hard for my money. I don't want some old man taking all the credit. I didn't know what her money had to do with anything, but obviously the elves had seen that we were a lot better behaved than my cousins. My mom must have seen that too and felt bad for them, so she gave them presents as well. But I realized that the wrapping paper on my cousin's presents were exactly the same as the paper Santa had used on one of mine. I excitedly told my mom all about it, and she's like, no, it's just a coincidence. Didn't want to talk about it. But I knew exactly what it meant. The elves shop at the same store as us. When my dad took us to buy our mom's Christmas present, I tried to head to the wrapping paper aisle and see if anyone looked like an elf in disguise, but dad wasn't having it. He shuffled us to the gift basket aisle. He said, you don't need to look around. We don't have to shop for four hours and spend a bunch of money like your mother. Get that bubble bath you always get her again. You already know she likes it. When I was six, Santa had all new wrapping paper. Nothing like my mom used, but every present was wrapped in the same paper. Of course, there were three kids now, so there needed to be name tags. My first bit of physical evidence. As my brother and sister tore theirs open carelessly, I rushed around the room grabbing all the tags, screaming, Save those! I want to check the handwriting! My mom said, Hey, why don't you let me hang out of those while you open your presents? But somehow she mistakenly threw them all away while I was distracted, and Santa never used name tags again. When I turned seven, he started using color-coded ducktails wrapping paper. I would get red, my brother green, and my sister blue. I'd become obsessed with the show. It was all about three siblings who had adventures in unexplored places all over the world, and they met vampires and aliens and monsters, and hey, I was part of a three-sibling trio. And it made me think that one day I could, as the theme song promised, solve a mystery or rewrite history. So I was going to be the first person to meet an elf. By the time I was eight years old, I was perplexed by how nonchalant everybody else was about these elves. 
Bigfoot, aliens, who knew if they existed, but people talked about them all the time. But elves, we actually had proof that they were around us all the time, even if no one had ever seen one, but no one even thought or mentioned them until December rolled around. I had so many questions. Finally, just to keep me from staying up all night looking, my mother told me, the elves don't live in our house. That left only one other option. I knew they must live in the wetlands around our house. I mean, it was a perfect place to hide. No one ever went in there. It was full of poison ivy, thorny vines, mosquitoes, wild animals, deep mud pits. I'd heard sounds. Mom rolled her eyes and said, it's just raccoons or possums, as though elves weren't even a possibility. She's the one who told me about them. So that winter, I headed into the wetlands. I trudged deeper and deeper. I could tell by the untouched blanket of snow that no one else was out here except for the occasional deer. The giant spiderwebs and unbroken branches between trees told me that I might be the first human to ever set foot here. And then suddenly I stepped on what I thought was solid ground, and I heard crack, and my legs shot down into the cold, wet earth. The shock of the freezing cold mud shot up my body. The blanket of snow had been hiding one of those mud pits. I was stuck like quicksand. And I was worried that once it pulled me in, I might be frozen there forever. I tried pulling on a branch like in the cartoons, but it just snapped in half and made me fall backwards into the mud. My arm got stuck. It was so wet and cold. I flailed and rolled around until soon my leg popped out, missing a shoe. I had to dive back in the mud to dig for it. Eventually I got out, and I sat there covered in freezing cold snow and mud, terrified of taking another step. I didn't know what ground was safe. One wrong step and I could be sucked under. As I started to panic, something hit the ground ahead of me with a thud. I didn't know what it was. It looked at first like a neon green egg, but it didn't sink. So I knew that the place it landed was solid. I crawled toward it. It was a golf ball. There was no golf course anywhere nearby. Who had thrown it? So I yelled out, Is anyone there? A few feet ahead of me, I found another golf ball. And another. Red ones, green ones, white ones. I followed them like E.T. following Reese's pieces. Can you help me find the way out? They led me to a giant old tree that seemed hollow. I heard something scurrying inside. I knew what my mother would have said. It's probably just raccoons. But I didn't think so. I whispered, If someone's in there, leave me another golf ball. I closed my eyes, and when I opened, I looked around in the snow to see if I could find one. I did. So I whispered, If you're elves, leave me a red one. I closed my eyes again. When I opened them, it took longer to find, but there it was, a red golf ball. So I whispered into the tree, Thank you for saving me. I kept visiting him. Now that I knew the safe places to step, I'd bring them cookies. And when I came back, the cookies would be gone and golf balls would be scattered around in their place. I didn't know how to golf, but I didn't want to be rude and turn down a gift, so I collected them in egg cartons. I mean, it made sense to me. Elves make toys. These guys didn't have a workshop, and balls were the easiest toys to make. That same year, I took my brother and sister up to our parents' room to wrap Mom's annual bubble bath basket. She kept all the wrapping paper in the back of her closet... I was sorting through all the snowflake patterns, snowmen, and Santa hats to decide which one we should use. And then, deep in the back, I saw something. Some eyes looking back at me. No, they weren't elves. It was Huey 
Dewey, and Louie on DuckTales wrapping paper in red, green, and blue. It all came together. I, I just solved a mystery. I'd just rewritten my entire history. I knew why my mom's wrapping paper had matched. I knew why she didn't want me looking closely at the handwriting. I knew she'd lied to me about the elves. She'd lied to me about Santa. She'd made me look like an idiot. Suddenly, everything made sense. How someone in the next subdivision over had probably just been hitting golf balls into the woods off his deck. How I'd probably just been fattening up a tree full of cookie-loving possums. Why no one else seemed to care at all about the elves all around us. Because they were all in on it. My mom, my dad, my aunt, my teachers, the TV, the media. I turned around and I saw my little brother and sister looking up at me, confused. I quickly pushed the DuckTales wrapping paper back where they couldn't see it. Now, I was in on it. I silently wrapped the bubble bath basket while I wondered if I should tell them what I now knew. I guess I didn't wrap it well, because soon after I heard another conversation between my mom and dad. She said, they got me that bubble bath again? I'm allergic. Dad said, what? I told them to buy that. You said you liked it. She goes, Rick, of course I told them I liked it. Didn't you notice I get the hives every December? I said, so why did you use it? She said, I don't want to hurt their feelings. He goes, just dump it down the toilet. It's not like they're going to come in and sniff your bath water. I realized she had spent years dealing with hives because she didn't want to ruin our Christmas morning. I also started to make sense of the extra night shift she worked in October, November, and December. How she never slept, but she never missed a beat. All the screaming arguments about how much Santa brought and how much it cost and the credit cards. And I realized that giving some old man credit wasn't lying to us. She was going through all of this to give us some tiny feeling of magic and didn't want to take away one bit of it by showing us how the sausage got made. So I didn't tell either. After Christmas, I took my mom upstairs to the closet and I showed her what I'd found. And I explained that I knew her secret. Mom and dad were Santa. She sat down in the bed, which made the headboard bump against the wall with a thump. You're a big boy now, she said. But I wasn't listening. I was frozen once again with one more horrifying realization. There, on the other side of the wall from where the headboard had just thumped, was my own bed. And I recognized the sound. The sound that had started this whole thing all those years ago. The thump that I'd pressed my ear against the wall to listen to, to feel the vibrations of, was the sound of my parents having sex. I'd been listening to Santa after all. Do you hear what I hear? A song, a song, high above the tree, with a voice as big as the sea, with a voice as big as the sea. Said the king to the people everywhere, listen to what I say, the child, the child, sleeping in the night, he will bring us goodness and light, he will bring us goodness and light. 
This is Risk. This is Jethro Tull behind me now. Now is the solstice of the year, my friends. And before that, we heard a radio-style story by our good friend Ryan Estrada, who you can find at ryanestrada.com. That story was edited by our audio editor, John LaSala. And before that, a little Yuletide ode to the words... Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young by Bare Naked Ladies. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Ben Grant and Rory Scholl. But before that, a story that was shared at the first ever Risk Live show at The Virgil in Los Angeles. David Crabb is the host and producer of the monthly Risk Live show that happens out there in L.A. Here he is now with a story we call Snowbound. So, for years, uh, my husband Jack and I lived in New York. Between us, we had over 30 years in New York. And during the holidays, we got really excited because uh, we got to go to Texas to visit my family. Uh, My family lives in San Antonio and around the suburbs. My stepdad, Glenn, and my mom, Jerry. Uh, My mom, Jerry, is a tiny little woman from Newfoundland, Canada. Uh, She has very large... She has like a double F cup. I don't know. She looks like a top-heavy leprechaun. Um... um, (laughs) She's just cheerful and she loves church, but in that progressive way where there's like a freedom flag in front of her house, she's fantastic, right? And we love going home for Christmas, especially those last few years in New York. Well, we've been in New York for many years, and if you've lived in New York before, before you go, you hate many of the years before you go. It's not like one day you wake up and you're like, I hate it here, and you arrange a move in a month, the way that you would if you lived in St. Louis or Chicago. New York, you give like a three-year notice to. And we were in that phase and so excited for Christmas, but a few months before Christmas, my mom and my stepdad told me that they were going to move back to St. John's, Newfoundland, which is where my mom is from. Anyone familiar? St. John's, Newfoundland? Great. So um, St. John's, Newfoundland is the easternmost point of Canada. Uh, They're like the Aggies of Canada, if you know what that means. Uh, There are joke books in Canada about goofy newfies, like why did the goofy newfie cross the road? Why did the goofy newfie? They're the only place in the world that they have their own half-hour time zone. They decided that. They wanted to be the first place in North America to have New Year's Eve, so good for them. They can do something. Um... And it is a charming, snowbound, beautiful place. And, you know, growing up, I visited it a few times with my mom. And I visited in May or June. And when you go to Newfoundland in May or June, you feel like Julie Andrews on a mountaintop in The Sound of Music. It is gorgeous. It is God's creation. You want to spin around in an apron. You know the Nazis are coming, but it's beautiful for now. Um, It is a fantastic place. And when they moved there, I was like, well, this is going to be so interesting, right? Because Texas is nice, but... You know, me and Jack and our little dog, Charlie, we're going to go to Newfoundland for Canada. How Christmassy will that be? And then Christmas came, and uh, we put our little dog, Charlie, who is a uh, Jack Russell Chihuahua mix, into a little carrier. We gave him so much Benadryl, he looked like an extra from a Cheech and Chong movie. I will never forget him peeking up from the seat, like, what the fuck, man? Um, <clears throat> 
And we flew to St. John's, Newfoundland. And we were so excited. But what we didn't think is as two people who were growing to hate New York, especially the winters in New York, which are grueling, we didn't think about how the exotic aspect of it would still be a lot more fucking snow and freezing temperatures. And as we're landing in Newfoundland, I just remember the plane. You know when you can feel the wings are buckling? Like you can feel that instead of left or right, like that the plane is just coming in gut first at such an angle because the wind is blowing right at it. And I thought that we had crashed for a moment because there was so much snow. We were so snow blind, we just landed, and I couldn't see anything. We landed on the runway. We took our little dog, who even he was sort of now no longer stoned. Like, what the fuck happened? What the fuck is that, and where are we? And we get off the plane, and I'll always remember, we're walking down the plane, so excited for Christmas to see my family, and in the little car area, I see my mother in eight layers of scarves and coats, and she looks at me with like the look of ages like like she looks at me like i can't believe this poor fucking sucker came like that that that's how my mother's welcoming me like oh shit and i'm like i look at jack and i'm like i don't know what we're here for but it's not going to be good um it is so cold i can't even explain to you how cold it is my stepfather who's so kind he helps us into the truck and the minute i get in the truck i'm like okay this is some weird energy you know jack and i have had like eight or nine christmas we've been together a very long time but this is weird my mom's not happy my stepdad is trying to make things work my dog is fucking freaking out and as we pull out into st john's newfoundland it is white to give you an idea of how much snow had fallen we landed on christmas eve there was more snow on the ground then had fallen in the previous five winters combined. Five years in the one winter by December 24th. My mother is telling me, almost I feel like she's going to cry about the amount of snow. We drive into their neighborhood and we're looking and I've never seen their new home, their new life. And there are all these charming one-story houses on these white sort of snowy icy mountains, little hills. But then my stepdad turns into a weird snow tunnel and I realize that they are all two-story houses and so much snow has been plowed from the street that no one can fucking access the first floor of their home anymore. They come and go through their garage, which they keep plowed. Fun. Um, we go into the house. It's freezing. Our dog looks at us like, what happened? He's so confused. He's never been so high and now he's so cold. Um, my mom's cat attack. Come, Bailey comes out of nowhere. <laughs> like hissing and my dog's like what the fuck is happening um my mom shows us to the basement and she's like here's where you'll be sleeping just so much sadness do you know what i mean and it it it, it, it's like an open basement plan and as we're looking at it we smell something terrible and bailey the black hat is shitting and just really wincing looking at us like in our eyes like you're you're a fucking idiot um it smells so bad, at which point my stepdad starts telling us, just by the way, he's having some kidney problems. He's on a lot of medication. He shits a lot, and it smells terrible. But do you want some eggnog? Um, and so we go upstairs, and we're trying to relax. And the next few days just unfold this way. The windows in our room and all the... It's just snow. We can't leave. They apparently run some kind of siren to let you know you can go out for an hour. Um... And we try to find the lovely... I mean, one thing I was so excited about, you know, um, there are things called mummers. Mummers are Newfoundland carolers. And it's a, it, just to give you an idea of how truly morbid and weird and bizarre Newfoundlanders are, 
these carolers, mummers, they put sacks on their head and they cut out weird holes for the eyes and they come to your house and you let them in. These people with flower sacks on their head, they might be your neighbors. Why isn't there like a, like a Bloomhouse movie? The mummers, you know? I mean, I at least thought we'd get that. The mummers, they're not coming out. It's too dangerous. Black ice. So there's nothing. At one point, like the third day, we get to leave for a minute and we go to just get chicken tenders at like a fast food restaurant. And as we're there eating the chicken tenders, he's laughing because he knows it's true. All of a sudden, like the blizzard starts coming and the people start closing up and they're like, oh, we got to get home in time. We're like two minutes, right? We go back home. My mother is irate. Now, I know that moms get away during the holidays, right? We all have moms that they have that anxiety, that energy. They want things to be perfect. And if it's not perfect, they take it out. And my mother was so... My mother would do this thing where she would, you would hear her in the kitchen reaching for something. Uh, 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 and then you say, Mom, let me help you. I don't need help. Uh, uh, Mom, let me... I don't need you. It was just like, oh, my God. And Jack a few times was like, I've known your mom for many years, but this is weird. I don't know what to do, man. Our dog, like, what the happening and then my poor stepdad just wants everything to be nice so he's like going sometimes from room to room where my mom is in her own encampment and I'm in another part of the house like how's everyone y'all need some cookies and eggnog like it's just it's the worst and the snow is falling so intensely like we the only thing that gets us outside is taking our little dog Charlie to take a shit and a piss and it's almost like well we have to do that right so at least we get some air we go outside and we, he just runs 20 houses and runs back he's never been in the snow and he's really like really enjoying it not like snow snow I have a, a video of us like laying him down on the snow to take a pee and he just drops two feet and he's in like a snow cave like looking at us right and my husband tells this story about how one time he went outside and the snow was so intense that uh, he went, you know, Charlie took his shit and then he came back in the house, had the dog on the leash, put everything down, started taking off his shoes and he looked around and realized, this isn't my house. <laughs> he very quietly, he heard people talking, the living room was right on the balcony and he left with the dog and he got home and as he was telling us the story, he realized, I left the bag of shit in their foyer. <laughs> like, there's a family that spent Christmas night being like, oh, what is... Is it coal? No, it's worse. It's Chihuahua shit. Merry Christmas. Um, it was terrible. It was terrible. And it was maybe very near the end of our trip when there was, like, one pub that Jack wanted to go back to because everything there feels like Shaun of the Dead, like it's heavily... Like, you feel like you're going to have, like, a really cheerful zombie experience in a pub wherever you go any minute. And we were going, and we asked my mom, do you want to go? And she said, no. I'm like, my mom's really cool. My mom's a really cool lady. And, like, for her to, like, reject this opportunity to go out together, like, really bummed me out. And we go, and we get in the car, and I'm like, I guess she just stressed out. She needs her space. I don't know. And I realize I forgot my scarf. And when I go back in, I'm in the foyer, and I hear my mom talking. And she's saying, like, I can't believe he's just so selfish and the two of them. And she's, like, dissing us. And there's a thing when, you, you know, your mom gets stressed in the holidays, and it's about you. But it was something about it being about my husband that, like, freaked me out. So I went back to the car, and I told Jack, I'm going to be in there a while, okay? So leave the heat on. I'll be back. And I went inside the house and I came up and I said, Mom. And she was like hanging up the phone and she turned and looked at me. And I literally, the way she looked at me, I was like, Oh, that's the way I looked when you would catch me on acid all the time when I was 16. This is what this feels like in reverse, right? She was like, What? No, oh, I'm fine, you know? And I said, Mom, <clears throat> what's fucking going on? I love you. You're freaking out. It's the holidays. We were so excited to come here. 
I want her to sit at the dining room table with me, and she won't. And it's like a standoff in a Western. It's like taking a seat means like she did something wrong, so she just stands on the other side of the table. Well, no, no, what? And I'm like, I'm like, really, like, what, why are you saying this? Like, what's going on? You're, you seem so unhappy. And then finally she just breaks down, and she says, I'm 64 years old. I talked my husband into spending $20,000 to leave our whole life to move here. And it's terrible. There's snow. We can't go out. The dog and cat are fighting. You're sleeping in the smell of our cat shit all the time. Like, this was a quaint fishing village, and this was years ago, and now it's like an oil town. They're like fracking everywhere. My oldest sister, who I thought I'd go out with, she's like 15 years older than me. She's like almost 80. And it was literally like being faced by someone telling you, basically, like, you can't go home again. Do you know what I mean? And it was really one of the first moments I had where, you know, you grow up and you think your parents, well, they're your parents. They're there for you. They change their lives for you. Like, you're enough. And you're like, no, your parents fucking have dreams and ambitions and all these things they want to do. And my mom had all of them and they all got fucked up and she invited me to them. And she just like broke down. And I want to tell you that we had a great moment and we hugged it out and I told her I loved her, but we couldn't. She couldn't look at me. She felt vulnerable. I was so angry and we just left it alone. A few days later, you know, the next few days were okay. They were better. And then a few days later, we called to check on our flight. Our flight was going to leave the next morning, and it was midnight. And we found out there was a storm hitting Brooklyn, all of New York. And we called Delta, and Delta was like, it's going to be fucked up. No planes will be coming to New York for four more days. If you can get to the airport in half an hour. And I literally, I think I hung up before she was finished. I was like, get the dog. Um, We knocked on my parents' doors. They woke up. I was like, we're leaving, uh, but I love you. Um, And uh, they understood. They hugged us, and we got to Brooklyn, and it was a fucking blizzard. It was the shittiest blizzard that we'd had the whole time I'd ever lived in Brooklyn, and we would have never come home from Newfoundland, which was beautiful, apparently, the next few days. And we were there thinking about it. And over the next few days, my mom was apologetic. She was kind. She would find little ways to be like, sorry about Christmas, and, you know, in her own way. And a few months after that, The winter in New York went on and on. It was like an endless blizzard. And my mom called me one day, and I was like, how are y'all doing? And she's like, well, we're getting ready to move. I'm like, well, where are you moving? She's like, back to our old neighborhood in San Antonio. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, we found a house. Glenn's going to get his job back. We're done with this. And you know, I thought it was really fucking cool that my mom at that age and my stepdad at that age did that. And they did it. They moved back. They literally got a house two blocks from the old house in the neighborhood they lived in for 15 years, went back to her old church, got her old job back at the church. She literally like got a glow up in Texas is what my mom did. And within the next few months, my husband and I decided we were going to move to L.A. Because I was like, if my mom can do it, do you know what I mean? I think people look to their heroes as people their own age or something. And really, to this day, I think of that Christmas and my mom. And she really is uh, one, of my, one of my main heroes. Thanks, y'all. And I want everyone to start a new tradition of leaving dog shit in people's foyers for the holidays. I think that would be a really charming thing. What fresh hell is this?
I used to do acid a lot uh, in my early 20s, and I lived in Tennessee. My friends and I would do acid at my uncle's cabin up in the Smoky Mountains, and we had a system down so that what we would do is we would take acid about an hour before we arrive at this cabin way up in the mountains, and it was about an hour drive. The last 20 minutes of the drive was a gravel road through forest. Uh, It was very evil dead, I would say. So it was always sort of a race against the clock. You'd say, let's go up to the mountains, and you'd do the acid, and it was always like that chance that if you have a flat or if you get pulled over, you're totally fucked, and you're going to be on acid in a terrible situation, and that's part of the fun. So... New Year's Eve, I get a call from my buddies, and they say, uh, hey, let's do it. We've been talking about it for a while. Let's go up in the mountains. These uh, few guys uh, tripping balls in the middle of nowhere for New Year's Eve. What a great New Year's Eve. So uh, he says, uh, I'm coming to pick you up. Drop. So I drop, I think, three or four hits of acid. I was a frequent flyer at the time. Um, And uh, wait. And about uh, 10 minutes go by, and then about 20 minutes go by, and then he calls, and he says, uh, you know what, the car won't start. I can't get my car to start. I'm so sorry. No, we can't go up there. Happy New Year. So, um, I am on many, many hits of acid at home, and any other night of the year, my parents would go to sleep at about uh, 10. Uh, I'm about 20 years old. Um, But tonight, they're going to stay up till midnight. And it would be really weird, New Year's Eve, for me to be cowering in my room, tripping walls. Uh, So I have to be sort of social. So I sit down, and we watch uh, Dick Clark. And I remember very much thinking that he was like a splitting image puppet. I was starting to genuinely doubt if it was really the real Dick Clark. And we weren't watching some sort of fake Dick Clark show and the real Dick Clark was on some other channel. I didn't express that stuff. I remember uh, trying to put a record album on at some point. My dad wanted to listen to some old country song and uh, I remember that when I tried to put the record on, the color part in the center of the disc with the paper label sort of drooped off the side of the album as though the black part was water and the little paper thing in the middle was floating on water. So I was swishing it around, trying to get the paper thing to fall all the way off. I don't know how long I was doing that. Um, But my mom asked me if something was wrong, and I said that I was looking for scratches on the album, and she bought that, so I must not have been doing it that long. It was great, oddly enough. I made some very big realizations, one of which is that I was my father. At the time, I was this punk rock New York sketch comedian and thought that I was not like my my father in any way, who was like this big southern dude who was mostly silent. And being around him, I realized I walk like him, I talk like him, I think like him. I like the same country music he did. And I think that all happened on that trip. It was a very, very good New Year, and I didn't get caught or put in an insane asylum by my parents, and I made some very big realizations about myself in the year 1991, I want to say, and those realizations stick. I look at my dad now, and I realize, hey, that acid was totally right. Uh, people with kids 
crack me up because they think since I don't have any that I can do whatever I want and not care about the future, which is quite the opposite. I do care about the future of this world, and that's why I don't have kids. Because if being a Santa Claus for the past 10 years has taught me anything, it's that kids are idiots. It's true. You were an idiot kid. I was an idiot kid. They're loud and they're selfish, and at no time is this more apparent than around the holidays. Now, I, uh, I always get a little more extra depressed around Christmas because it's a family thing. I don't really talk to my my family. And the past couple of years, the alcoholic I was dating kind of sucked the Christmas cheer out of the room. I never knew if I was coming home to find her drunk under the Christmas tree or hanging herself by the chimney with care. But uh, she she didn't. But... uh, But it is a good time to make some extra money with some odd gigs. And every year I find a few of those, which is great. In fact, two days ago I was dressed as an elf hiding in a forest in Prospect Park. So I got paid. Uh, Last summer I was at the uh, Columbus Zoo for uh, Christmas in July. And uh, one year I was also dressed as Santa and I did webcam chats with kids. Calm down. That's not the beginning of a Law and Order SVU. Okay. I could chat with kids, and they could tell Santa what they wanted for Christmas, and uh, the parents could fill out a form and uh, would have Santa say things that they were proud of about their kids and things they need to work on. And after I did about 40 of those, I wept for the future. Um, I had to say things like, Oh, Timmy, I'm so proud of the way you watch YouTube how do you do it? Oh, little Susie, do you think you could do a favor for Santa? Could you, could you start pooping in the toilet and not the kitchen table? All right. You're seven. Could you do that for Santa? Oh, yes. But all of those gigs were a dream compared to the Grinch of last year. So December 13th, I get an email from somebody who hired someone I knew that hired me to do a Santa Claus and la 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 and wanted me to do a walk around character at a Christmas party for a Facebook bigwig up in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, I said, what character? And it was the character I was born to play, the mayor of Whoville. Yes. Finally, my big break. And so I said, uh, sure. And an hour later, they emailed me the contract. And this was one of the most aggressive contracts I've ever gotten for mascot work or anything, really. Uh, It started out saying that uh, if you were one minute late, you would be docked pay and you must stay in character and do what the client says. And uh, you cannot badmouth the production company on social media, which that should have been a red flag right there. (laughs) And I don't see those. And then finally it was like, if you do not uh, do what we say, we will uh, blackball you from all event companies in New York City. So it was just an awful, awful contract. So, of course, I signed it and (laughs) sent it in. And they told me where to go. They, I had to go meet the director of the event at his apartment in Secaucus, and he would drive us the rest of the way to the party. So I'm on the bus, and I'm going through the videos of the original cartoon of the, uh, the Grinch, you know, boning up on my, I want to be the best mayor of Whoville I could be. And I get there, and I walk in the lobby of the apartment, 
and the big Russian dude's there, and he comes up to me. He goes, are you Rory? I was like, yeah. He goes, thanks for doing this. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm very excited about this. I said, where's the Grinch? And like on cue, the bathroom in the lobby opens up, and this really tall, spindly man dressed as the Grinch comes out and walks up to me, and his costume was awful. It was awful. He had green sweatpants and green sneakers and a green T-shirt. Uh, and a, and a, a, a janky old Santa coat and hat and a, a Grinch mask that looked like it was from Chinatown. And he painted his, uh, his ears and his neck green. And he stuck his hand out and he's like, nice to meet you. And I went to shake and he took it back and goes, too slow. Oh, yeah, Grinch. <laughs> and I knew I had made a huge mistake. And he just kept going on. And I was like, where's my costume? And the Russian director said, you're wearing it. And I was like, the, I brought a suit. That's all I brought. How are people going to know I'm the mayor of Whoville? I don't have a whiskers or uh, any mask or a wig. No costume. He said, we'll figure it out on the way. And then I asked the Grinch, I said, so how did you get suckered into this gig? And he goes, gig, I'm the Grinch. Ah! I was like, oh, no. He said, when I'm in character, I never get out of character. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So he's doing the Jim Carrey version of the Grinch. <laughs> so we're walking in the car, and I'm thinking of ways to, to kill myself. And we get in, and he rides shotgun. I sit in the back. And true to his word, uh, he did not break character. <laughs> the whole ride. The whole hour ride. Just kept going, oh, New Jersey, oh, the Who's celebrating Christmas, not on my watch, oh, yeah. Then he started doing other Jim Carrey things. He's like, somebody stop me. I was like, I wish I could, you know. <laughs> um, so we pull into a CVS. The director gets out. He comes back in with a tree skirt, and he says, this is your sash. And I was like, oh, great. This is a professional gig, if ever I saw one. <laughs> sash! And so we start driving... We finally make it to the house, and this house is beautiful. It's in New Jersey. It's beautiful. A big house. They have valet parkers outside. They have people helping people to the front door. Uh, champagne's being passed out, a bunch of lights. And this is just in the front yard. Uh, so once we get inside, this, the place is immaculate. It's, uh, there's four bars. There's a pool. There's two dance floors. There's a lobster bar. I've never seen a lobster bar. It's just people shucking lobster. Do you shuck lobsters? Uh, anyway, they had a lobster bar. Everything looked like it was a million bucks except us. Uh, so we meet the client, and we go down into the basement, and uh, we meet our third walk-around character, and it's the girl playing Cindy Lou Who. Now, Cindy Lou Who in the cartoon and the book and everything really is a little tot, just a little tiny thing. This was the tallest 10-year-old girl I had ever seen. She was taller than I was. And she was in a cocktail dress that was too short and she had pigtails. So here I was in the basement of a house in New Jersey with a guy dressed as a Grinch, a 10-year-old girl in a dress that was too short and a Russian director. I don't know how snuff films start, but this seemed like a good one. Um, so we go upstairs, the party starts, and right before we go on, part of the fun of doing an immersive character is walking around. If you've ever been to one, a party where characters are there, they stop and you do a little improv, they do scenes from whatever movie they're doing, and you move on, and it adds an extra layer. And I was looking forward to that part. So I said, Cindy Lou, are you, are you excited to do some improv? And she looked at me with dead eyes and, was, and said, um, no one should be alone on Christmas. Great. So she nailed that one line that she got from the movie. So we disperse, and we're walking around, and I'm trying to interact with people. 
trying to do something with the Grinch, and you know, people are asking me what I am. They're like, well, are you a gift box? Are you Miss America? I'm like, why, I'm the mayor of Whoville, of course. They're like, of course? So I was like, all right, please, please roll with it, please. And we'd stop occasionally, and I tried to do something with the Grinch. He was like, oh, somebody stop me, and he'd run off. I was like, I'd stop by a tree, and Cindy Lou would walk up to me. I was like, well, Cindy Lou, I'm the mayor of Whoville. You can see this tree is not decorated. How would you decorate this to make Christmas even better? And she said, no one should be alone on Christmas. <laughs> Great, Cindy Lou. All right, so about an hour of this, we keep doing this over and over again. And the Russian director calls me over. He wasn't allowed in the party because he was dressed in, like, jeans and a torn T-shirt. and he, So his, his head would pop out of the basement steps every once in a while, and I could hear him whistle to me. I'd come over, and he's like, go, dance, interact, dance. I don't know why I do his accent sometimes, and then sometimes I don't. That was awful. <laughs> awful. He said, go, dance, interact. I was like, oh, okay. So I, I would go, and I'd go, and I'd try to dance and talk to people. And, and then a series of events kept happening. He'd call me over, tell me to do something. I'd go to a group, the Grinch, somebody stop me, Cindy Lou. No one should be alone on Christmas. And then just kept repeating over and over again until I was so fucking fed up. I was like, this is it. This is embarrassing. These people don't even want us there. We had interacted with all 300 people. There was nothing else to do, and we still had an hour left. Uh, people were actively avoiding us. If we came by them, they would turn their back to pretend they were on the phone. One woman dropped her purse in the pool on purpose, I'm pretty sure, just because she saw us making a beeline for her. And so I was like, well, screw this. This last hour, I'm done. The mayor is about to get sloppy. So I took my sash off. Boom, I'm in a suit. I'm just like one of them. So I start drinking, and I start dancing, and eating, and I'm getting groped. I don't know how that happened. And we're, we're running all around. I'm running around the place, and it's great. And uh, uh, in, in an hour's time, I'm pretty lit. But the Russian guy, he says nothing, absolutely nothing, because he had left. And so did Cindy Lou Who and her mom, who was there. So it was just me and the Grinch. And uh, I was like, I'm done. He's like, no, we still have 30 minutes. Yeah, somebody stop. I was like, I'm stopping you. <laughs> right now, we're done. I'm done with this gig. This is awful. I doubt we're ever going to see money from this thing. And so we go up to the hostess, and luckily she was just drunk enough to say, you guys did great. I was like, okay. She got us a, uh, a, a, an Uber ride to the uh, train station because I had no idea where we were because I wasn't paying attention on the ride. I was just thinking, could I survive a, a, if I barrel rolled out of the back seat onto the New Jersey turnpike? Um, so we go to the train station and you know, we go inside and he still dresses the Grinch and I, I, you know, I order a beer and ask him if he wants one and he shakes his head and then I start complaining about the gig. I'm like, that's ridiculous. We're not going to get reimbursed for the train thing. These gigs always happen to me. What a waste of time. And he said to me, for the first time in his own voice, I liked it. I was like, what? What? And then he went to the bathroom to take his makeup and his mask and everything off. And I was like, what, is he, what did he like about that? You know, is he, this just a performer that's like down on his locker? He just needs attention? So I'm sitting there scratching my head thinking of And then when he comes out of the bathroom, his mask is off, his makeup's gone, his hat is off. And uh, I realized this is, this is not a man I was working with. This is a, this is a kid. This was like no more than... I don't know, 16, 17 years old. And he sits down and he says, uh, he goes, I, I like the gig. You know, I, I don't have many friends and 
this is a lot of fun to meet people and uh, I can take the extra cash home to my parents for the holidays and uh, I signed up to do a few more because I really liked it and I was like oh I didn't know what to feel you know I was like yeah I, I guess it was good what am I complaining about free lobster you know <laughs> and then something happened my heart <laughs> like my like my prostate one day <laughs> grew three times its size and so on the train ride home we were talking and laughing I was telling him about other gigs he could do and I gave him some information about other agencies of places he could work at and make some more money and he eventually fell asleep and I just looked at him he still had some green paint on his earlobes you know this kid here who was just there to make people laugh and make a little extra cash to bring home to his folks for the holidays and for the first time in many a Christmas, I didn't think the future looked that bad. Thank you. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. That is all for this week's episode, folks, and for all the episodes of 2019. This is Thurl Ravenscroft behind me now, and I have just learned that his real name was Thurl Ravenscroft. Before that, we heard from Rory Scholl, who you can find on Twitter at Rory Scholl. Before that, a little mini story by Ben Grant, edited by Jeff Barr. And before that, a little interstitial by our friend Rob Fulham. Now, if you listened to this episode and thought, oh, I have a funny holiday story, pitch us. Pitch us any time of year at risk-show.com slash submissions. Maybe your mom has a great story that happened during the holidays or uh, your boyfriend or whoever. Have people pitch us, spread the word that we want those holiday stories for next year at risk-show.com slash submissions. And be sure to follow us, keep up with us, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, we're at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. But listen, we have the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. We have all the communal stuff happening over at Patreon, where we share bonus stories as well as check-ins, and there's all sorts of new and interesting content to be found at Patreon.com/Risk. On our site, risk-show.com, you can find the tables of contents for all of the episodes, and you can find out where Risk is appearing next. So check that out at risk-show.com slash tour. There's lots of educational opportunities as well at our sister company, The Story Studio, at thestorystudio.org, 
all kinds of video workshops you can download or online workshops you can take you know while you're video conferencing with your teacher and other students there's in-person workshops in new york and los angeles and uh, minneapolis and there's corporate workshops that is all at the storystudio.org folks today's the day take a risk You're a foul one, Mr. Grinch. You're a nasty, wasty skunk. Your heart is full of unwashed socks. Your soul is full of gunk, Mr. Grinch. The three words that best describe you are as follows, and I quote, Stink, stank, stunk. Friggy! 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 I want some Friggy! Friggy! 